Welcome to the Macro View, episode 20. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Modern mainstream economic theorists would have you believe that World War II ended the Great Depression. The facts, however, speak quite to the contrary. Everyone thinks that they know a little bit about the Great Depression, but just for a quick refresher, the Great Depression began after the stock market crash of 1929, and from 1929 to 1933, real per capita GDP declined by a total of about 31%, and personal income per capita declined by a little bit more than 11%. Herbert Hoover was elected president. And then the Smoot-Holy Tariff was implemented, which hiked tariffs to unprecedented levels in the post-Fed and uh, income tax era, which many economists, including myself, believe prolonged the Depression. But I don't want to spend too much time on that specifically because it's kind of irrelevant to the larger discussion of whether or not government spending ended the Great Depression. Government spending did not decline despite popular belief in real per capita terms from 1929 to 1930. In both years, it actually rose and together by a total of more than 12%. It then declined by a little bit over 4% a year, but never reached its 1929 level. And even in 1933, under Herbert Hoover's final year, government spending was still 3.5% in real per capita terms, higher than it had been in 1923. 29. And that was despite private investment collapsing 88%, personal consumption declining 22%, personal incomes declining by over 28%. In fact, after the first year that real spending cuts were made, still not in comparison to the 1929 levels, but relative to the year before, in 1932, a 4% cut in spending was made, and that year, private investment bottomed out. It began to turn around, and the next year, in 1933, it increased by 47%, it increased by 79% in 1934, and it increased by 84% in 1935. The following year, 1930-34, real consumption, real personal incomes, and real GDP per capita all, all three in per capita numbers, all ticked up in the face of yet another 4% spending cut. Then Roosevelt took office. Government spending jumped by 12% in 1935. A very small 2% increase gave fuel to investors believing that Roosevelt had done all that he was going to. And then in 1936, spending hiked another 16%. The per capita real growth in consumption and an income was cut in half, and the following year, 1937, all indicators went negative. Government spending, though, increased again from trough to peak, and and there's no basis, zero basis, for even though the fact that it did grow, for saying that it was a causal factor in eliminating or ending the Great Depression. Tonight, I'll be breaking down the Great Depression, the World War II spending, the Great Society era, all the way up through the housing crisis. But before I get going, I want to make a couple of quick disclosures. This is part of a two-part series. Tonight, we're going to be debunking the Keynesian World War II deficit spending theory of how the Great Depression ended from a fiscal standpoint. Tomorrow night, we're going to debunk 
the monetary theory of what, of what caused and prolonged the Great Depression. And what I'm going to discuss here tonight will not necessarily present a clear conclusion other than that the Keynesians are wrong about the Great Depression and the wartime deficit spending's effect on ending it. As well, they are wrong about the general theory's favorable take on deficit spending regardless. And we may also conclude that naturally a massive increase in government spending creates an unsustainable, misleading, and unwarranted rise in data measures. And therefore, there's a significant flaw in the data when looking at big increases in government spending. And we may finally conclude that ultimately, economic history is economic history. And the analysis of data points based on non-repeatable crisis or periods of prosperity is at best an act of hindsight and only hindsight. The last crisis is not the next. And ultimately, individual actors are not data points. The individuals acting simultaneously towards self-interested goals and how they may pursue doing so at any point in time in interaction with billions of others spread out across the globe cannot be measured. And the mass effect of such at some point in the future is not particularly predictable in a repeatable fashion. We've got a great show for you tonight, folks. But first, a quick commercial break. Tired of losing debates to your left-leaning friends? Tired of being stumped by the state agenda? Feel you got gypped in school? Head over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. You'll find a treasure trove of real history and economics. With well over 100 hours of lectures from the world's most preeminent libertarian leaders, you'll get the equivalent of a PhD in libertarian thought. Courses include Austrian economics step-by-step, the history of political thought, the history of economic thought, four different U.S. history courses covering it all, a full history of Western civilization, John Maynard Keynes, his system and its fallacies, and much, much more. So head on over to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. So as I mentioned, I want to walk everyone through the Great Depression, World War II, the Great Society, through the Carter, and then the Reagan era, and up to now. And the reason for such is that I want to make it undoubtedly true that the World War II deficit spending is not what got America out of the Great Depression, and if anything, was a net drag on economic activity for the following 20 years. Further, in doing so, it will become clear that it has been an, an ear to adopt Keynesian economics as the guiding doctrine for our public policy and government interactions in the economy. And so to start out, you know, in the monologue, I pointed out that, that government spending did not decline from 29 to 33. It, it declined only in 32 and 33, but still remained above in, in real per capita terms the 1929 levels unlike all other economic indicators. And after one year of spending cuts, private investment turned around with a boom, and by the end of 34, by all accounts, the depression had pretty much ended. Real GDP per capita had bottomed out. Real private investment had you know, a miraculous resurgence, and personal income bottomed out. And then under Roosevelt, government began increasing spending again. After the 36 spending hikes, net 16%, and then it, again, to a level that was 37% higher than when the Great Depression began. 
in real per capita terms, personal consumption and income saw their growth cut by more than half year over year. So as soon as that spending trick, you know, the government spending trick turned back on, per capita personal incomes and, and the rate of GDP, GDP growth, the rate of growth in personal incomes and GDP growth slowed significantly. And particularly GDP growth slowed by 73% year over year. And in 37, trying to save the image, you know, save image in the face of a, a very significant slowing pace of growth, a, a measly 5% net spending cut was made, which put the spending level in 1937 at roughly 1.3 times the 1929 level. So understand this, this whole time spending cuts never occurred. They never got back to their actual real in real per capita terms, their 1929 levels in 37 personal incomes fell and the following year, private investment fell. And from 37 to 38 GDP per capita declined as well. But as a result of government reining itself in by reducing that spending by 5%, the next year, the economy had already made up for the losses the year before. Over the next three years, 38, 39, and 40, private investment growth would outpace government spending growth by an average of 738% a year, by 7.4 times per year. Now, things get a little bit tricky here, so try to stick with me. So as we all know, on December 7th, 1941, exactly 75 years ago to the day, after the economy had grown by 34% from the bottom in 38, an average of 10% a year, this is the second bottom, not the original bottom, but the second bottom, it grew by an average of 10% per year over the three years, 37, 38, or 38, 39, 40. And in the face of extremely strong private investment growth and in real per capita terms, it, it, GDP was 18% higher than the 1929 levels, 72 percent higher than the 1933 bottom, and then December 7th, the end of the year in 1941, a year where 17 percent real GDP per capita growth numbers were stamped, the Imperial Japanese Air Force kamikaze bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, Harbor in Hawaii. It was exactly 75 years ago to this day. Now, it's true government dramatically increased spending in both nominal and real terms, more so than it ever had before, beginning at the end of the year in 1941. I remember that. Now, this was when the war was becoming imminent with Germany and the U.S. was beginning, build, beginning to build fleets and, and only to be attacked by the Japanese first. But then four days later on December 11th, the U.S. also had war declared on, on them by, or on, on us by Hitler and by the Germans. In 1942, spending increased again dramatically. In 1943, government spending increased significantly again, but not nearly as much as it had in 1942. Now, in 1941, remember, private investment was still roaring, growing at 20% that year after growing by a total of 77% the, years the, the two years prior. And in 1942 and in 43, in the heat of war and the nationalization of industries for wartime production, and in, in, the, the, in the face of you know, what was, became known as World War II, private investment plummeted 
by 70%. Then over the next three years, from 44, 45, 46, private investment once again boomed as government spending began to decline, really actually decline out of the war. From 43 to 46, private investment increased by an average of 68% per year. And in 1945, as the war was being won and brought to an end, private investment increased by 153%. The government spending from the four years prior, however, had caught up. And the economy's real growth rate was cut by more than 50% from 43-44. And then 45, the economy went into a recession. GDP per capita declined by 28%. Okay? Now, that's only three percentage points less than what it declined by in real per capita terms during the Great Depression from peak to trough. Personal incomes, personal consumption, both declined. And private investment became pretty volatile for quite some time. Government spending was unpredictable, but generally moved upwards. In 1950, it seemed that the economy was back on solid footing. And in 1950 and 51, GDP per capita grew by 7 and 6% respectively. Then government in 1951 decided to hike spending by 34% and then in 52 by another 18%. I should actually say that the government entered into the Korean War, which is what happened. But the 1952 real GDP per capita numbers showed real growth that was one-third of what it had been the year before. It was 2% as opposed to 6% the year before. And though growth picked up to 3% the next year, in 53, after the government spending growth was slashed by two-thirds year over year from 18% growth to 5% growth, it was still a little bit too late. The 1954 real GDP per capita numbers declined by 2%. And then the next three years straight, government cut spending in real per capita terms. In 1955, the economy grew at 5%. As government spending continued to decline. So remember this. The economy entered a short recession in, in 54. With GDP declining by 2%. Then in the face of real government spending cuts. Of 8%, 5%, and 2%, 2% respectively for three years straight. The economy rebounded the following year. But then the lack of victory and no real resolution in Korea a situation that still to this day is considered an ongoing conflict with a ceasefire and a demilitarization zone as the only buffer to combat, the lack, that lack of resolution and the lack of a clear victory, as well as our entry during that time into, into Vietnam, it did send shivers down the spines of private investors. And from 56 to 58, private investment declined by a total of 15% over that three-year period. Now, the economy stalled, and then once again in 59, dipped negative. With wartime spending temporarily halted, while government expenditures grew, they did so at a pace that we would beg for these days. From 59 to 69, one of the longest-lasting periods of purely positive economic growth, government spending grew by only 2.44% on average in real per capita terms, while real per capita private investment grew by 5.59% on average over the same period. Personal incomes grew by 3.3%. Personal consumption grew by 3.1% or closer to 3.2%. And real GDP per capita grew steadily at 3.3% per year. 
on average over that, that same period. And during this period of prosperity, every economic we've measured that, that we've been discussing here outpaced government expenditures, outpaced the growth of government expenditures by 30% or more, while private investment outpaced government expenditures by 129%. Now, we're going to pick back up here in just a minute, but not to digress, rather to just detail something I mentioned earlier. I want to take a step back for a second. I mentioned earlier that World War II spending, while it does seem to have been a component of some economic boom, largely was just a massive distortion, one in which the data does not represent the situation on the ground. And my basis for this claim is the aftermath. Leading up to World War II, the economy had been growing at about an average rate of 6% in per capita uh, real terms from the bottom in 1933, the bottom of the Great Depression. At that pace, real GDP per capita, and this was from 1933 to 1942, the war, before entering the war, and before the big increases in government spending. At that pace, real GDP per capita should have been, by 1964, about 122% higher than it actually was. And there's some basic logic behind why this actually is. As this is just extrapolating, and and I could, I'm going to on the on the show notes page tonight. I'll be putting a uh, a, a range so that it's it's a little bit more accurate that that'll include sort of the volatility of, of growth during that period as well. But there is some basic basic logic behind why this is. Wartime measures were extreme. The nationalization of many industries took place, and production was focused mainly on weapon manufacturing, goods that once the war ended had no use but to stockpile until the next war, which obviously there were almost continuous wars going on until the end of of Vietnam, but the idea, and then you also had the Cold War and and stockpiling and build up for that, but the idea is which, you know, kind of hopefully by the time another war occurs, if ever, those weapons would be sort of obsolete. It's, you know, it's been so much time since wars have passed you know, between wars. There are massive distortions in the production of goods. There are also price controls, which we're going to discuss a little bit more tomorrow when we debunk the monetarist view of a lot of these periods. But when the war ended and the production and all these factors no longer maintained the elevated value that the weapons manufacturing had, had maintained – when the war was going on and the mass production of weapons went to the uses intended, which was fighting the war, they were, those, that production was worth a lot more during that short period of time. It took almost 20 years to sort this out. And the war in Korea, the spike in spending that resulted from both that and the interstate highway system spending didn't help the cause. GDP per capita peaked in 1944. And as mentioned earlier, declined by 28%, which is a significant decline of only three percentage points less than the decline from the 1929 peak to the 1933 trough. It took from bottom, in the Great Depression, it took from the bottom six years to reach the previous high in real per capita terms as far as GDP. Post-World War II, however... It took 17 years from the bottom of the post-World War II GDP decline. It took 17 years to recover the GDP per capita, the real GDP per capita 
losses that occurred when the wartime provisions were lifted and industries once again had to please consumers, not the military. Now, it does also so happen that the period from 59 to 69 was amongst the most stable and robust growth periods in U.S. history. As I mentioned earlier before revisiting the post-war data, there is no basis to believe that without the wartime spending, the trend of 6% growth that was occurring from the 1933 bottom to the 1941 war entry would have stagnated. Growth was very strong and very robust. We had a tr- and had that trend continued, real GDP per capita, and I'll think about this, and this is based on that 6% average, real GDP per capita in 1964 would have been about 2% higher than the numbers that were posted in 1999, 35 years later. Now, we've got a little bit more to discuss here tonight. So stay tuned throughout the entire show. I, you know, I, I do want to spend about five to 10 more minutes getting listeners through the 70s, 80s, and 90s because I think that data is very important. But first, we're going to take another quick commercial break. Imagine learning more about economics in one short day than most people do in a lifetime. Imagine understanding how to demolish the common economic myths that many professional economists still believe after years of education. Imagine finally having a framework to confidently analyze the economic issues of our time rather than feeling overwhelmed by statist arguments. Well, stop imagining and start doing. Sign up and take the Mises Boot Camp online. In just three hours of lectures, a couple of slideshows, and a bit of reading, you'll be ready to take on the statist world of fallacies with no sweat. The best part is it's all free. For your convenience, you can find a link directly to the registration page in tonight's show notes at macroviewnews.com slash podcast slash 20. All right, everyone. So here on the home stretch of tonight's episode, I want to talk everybody through the last 45 years from 1970 through the end of, let's call it, up to the housing crisis, 06, 08. I'm not going to, I think that the last 10, 15 years, really honestly, going back to the early 90s, it, it needs its own episode and it, you got to get really into some of the fiscal and monetary nuances that were taking place. And you know, the, the regulatory state really became, I mean, if you look at like, the expansion of regulations over the last 20 or 30, it became a new tool so in price fixing and, and, and wage fixing and when, when you know, sort of the, the nationalization of wartime provisions and when other measures were no longer plausible politically for various reasons, regulations became the favorite to go to. And there's a number of reasons why. I did a whole episode on regulations on, back on episode four. Um, I also talk about it, it is access to capital. I also talk about it in episode 3.5, which was a little pop-up episode. So you can go back and check those out. But I'm, so I'm not going to get into the real details of the, the, you know, I mean, the regulatory state expanded significantly. I'm not going to really touch on that tonight. I'm going to focus more on budgets and I'm going to relate what we're talking about and the, and the, the, you know, which has basically been, you know, try, debunking the long-standing theory of budget deficits and massive amounts of government spending 
as a way to stimulate economic growth and, and using World War II as an example, which I think after the last segment is very clearly not the case. But now I want to go forward and, okay, well, what about since then? You know, Because we have had one of the greatest increases in standard of living, both here at home in America and around the world in the post-World War II era, and especially so over the last 20 or 30 years with the technology, uh, with the technology boom and just the rapid pace of innovation. So, but I want to get, you know, there's a lot of subtleties in, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, and especially the last five or 10 years. So I'm not going to get too into, you know, I'm not going to bring everybody all the way through uh, up to last year. We will reserve another episode to, to do a similar type of analysis on that shorter period. But we left off in 1969. I want to just go back to in 66 and 67, the Johnson administration had had significantly escalated the efforts in Vietnam War. So I I want everybody to kind of reimagine where we're at in history. And the spending had increased at a rate in back-to-back years for the first time since the Korean escalation in the early 50s. For the first time, it increased at a rate in back-to-back years that outpaced all of the other measures that we've been discussing tonight. And by the way, all of the, the measures that, that we're talking about, I'm going to be posting in an indexed format in real terms the per capita numbers that we've been talking here tonight, talking about here tonight. I'll be posting a, um, a link to download the Excel file with it, and I'll have the source information both as, as links in the now uh, I'll explain the the actual file structure on the show notes page I don't want to go go into it right now but the methodology and, and all of that on uh, uh, on the show notes page I'll also have links to the sources and then I'll have the sources in the Excel file but uh, the 60 so remember it, it, this is the first time since the early 50s in in 66 and 67 that spending increases outpaced all the other measures. And in 68, the, the rate of growth of government spending slowed as popularity for the war in Vietnam and being in an election year hit all-time lows. And there's also a cultural revolution that was taking place. We all know it as the, sort of the hippie movement. And, and you know, it, 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 it really dug pretty deep those last couple of years. The government had also just ended a few years earlier the 100 years of state-mandated discrimination known as the Jim Crow era, which is one of the real skid marks on this country's history. And the sentimental tides were shifting regarding American interventionism overseas. Richard Nixon, who was the former vice president under Ike Eisenhower, he was also a former Republican candidate for president in 1960 versus Kennedy and lost. And he was also a former Senator from California. He was nominated for president and by the, by the Republicans and running on an anti-war platform went on to beat Hubert Humphrey, who a lot of people don't know the, uh, the story of the, of, of the 1968 election, but Hubert Humphrey was nominated, um, basically above George Wallace and George Wallace was the, well, actually I believe it was Johnson that was nominated above George Wallace uh, earlier. And George Wallace actually ran as a third party in 68 and George Wallace was, you know, he was the progressive populist 
you know, he was the people's hero of the Democratic Party. And he was he was extremely racist and well known. He's former governor of of uh, of Alabama, longtime Democrat, left and ran as an independent. He won all the electoral votes of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas. And I think that he also won a single electoral vote in North Carolina. And so Nixon becomes president, and what ended up being an electoral landslide because of the third party. But he broke his promises on Vietnam. But he did go on to cut spending for his first four years in office. And then after winning re-election in 72, his first year, he also cut spending in his first year of the second term in 73. And then Watergate happened. Now, Watergate was the scandal of a generation, and it sent the economy into a mild, although semi-long-lasting compared to some of the recent one-year dips that we had seen, semi-long-lasting recession. And during this period, government spending barely increased as all other economic data points took dips for two years. And then in 76, Gerald Ford, during the election year, cut spending by 1%. The economy turned around. And... um, there's something looming, though, that, that I think that, that probably, I mean, it definitely was what ultimately cost Gerald Ford the election. But there's also, Gerald Ford had, had, had broken a, a promise to not seek election after an, after an intense battle with the former governor of California who had declined, this Ronald Reagan, he had declined to run for a third term as governor in 75 to seek the presidency in 76. And at the promise of Mr. Ford not running, in the 76 election Ford went on to lose the election to Jimmy Carter, but there's also something else going on now. Nixon in 71, remember removed the United States from the gold standard officially. So in, in <clears throat> way back in 33, which we didn't really talk about, I will be talking about tomorrow. Cause I think it relates more to monetary and I'll touch more on this tomorrow, but uh, Roosevelt confiscated the gold in 33, supposedly in, in Fort Knox, and supposedly still is. And then Nixon, uh, there started to be a little bit of inflation, and foreign foreign governments wanted to get gold back, you know, probably partially because there's still a lot of the European governments uh, were still struggling to rebuild from World War II at this, at this time. They wanted the gold um, they're afraid of, of inflationary measures possibly being taken by the U.S. Nixon broke that promise and basically said we won't be paying foreign debts in gold anymore. We won't be settling foreign, you know, foreign trade in gold anymore. And started to see inflation. In 76, Carter wins. And the, the removal of the gold standard actually really hit Jimmy harder than anybody, Jimmy Carter. And aside from his foreign policy flaws, uh, Jimmy Carter was, was in by modern standards, fairly responsible with the budget in his time. He also did set some of the biggest ticking time bombs. He signed into law a, a vast expansion on the Housing Act that really set us up. It, it wasn't really enforced, but then another expansion later on, which we'll talk about a little bit, another expansion later on, that was made on top of the uh, Carter expansion, and this was done under Clinton, was uh, made the law basically enforceable to banks, and that's what really kind of ticked in to you know, cause the housing crisis a number of years later. But in, in regards to budget, 
budget-wise, the budget only t- increased a total of 3%, less than 1% per year in real terms. The last couple of years of the Carter administration were disastrous as money prices began to reset. You know, it, it had begun a little bit earlier, but inflation really hit hard. Uh, it, it reached double digits. In, in the 80 election, uh, the economy had dipped into, which was an election year. In 1980, the economy dipped into recession. It was an election year. Ronald Reagan got the nomination from the Republicans after what was actually a very nasty battle with, with uh, George H.W. Bush, who became vice president. He went on to defeat Jimmy Carter in a landslide. And in 81, Reagan cut income taxes, but the income taxes were mostly a lot of people don't know this, these, these details of it. The early, the, the 81 cut uh, income tax cuts, they were largely offset by increases in payrolls that were passed under Carter, phased in under Reagan, and then expanded upon under Reagan. And also interest rates were spiking like crazy because of the inflation and in response to inflation, Volcker, you know, jacked up interest rates. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about all of that monetary stuff tomorrow night. But further, the Ford Carter era uh, Housing Act expansion is a little bit under Ford, but then really expanded under Carter. And the creation of the government guaranteed mortgage insurance and the expansion of FHA and, and many government housing benefits, which caused existing home prices to, to skyrocket. At this time, now people forget this. Yes, there was a bigger crisis later on, but at this time, back in the, the late 70s and 80s, existing home sales went through the roof and housing prices went through the roof. And then in 82, existing home sales collapsed by more than 50%. Now remember, from 73 to 1982, the US dollar averaged 9% annual inflation and reached double digits in four out of those nine years. And that also included the four, it included three straight years from 1979 to 1981. But as inflation slowed down, and significantly so, so, you know, the the 82 economy had dipped into this recession with the housing market crash. But it, it, it was a deeper recession than the ones two years, a couple of years earlier. Government spending barely increased. It increased by less than 1% in real per capita terms. And the next two years, as inflation subsided from its peak of 13.5% in 1980, that was what, 13.5% in 1980, I think it was over 11% in 1981. And and that was when, you know, the next year the the economy went into a deflationary recession and prices began to fall a little bit and, and, and by CPI, by measures of, of CPI, all, all items for all urban consumers, it got down to a more stable rate of about 3% by 1983. Now, this is where I think you begin to really see, and you've got to be careful, I caution anyone for making any hard and direct statements regarding this, because uh, there are a lot of nuances, like I mentioned earlier, but this is where you begin to see uh, sort of the Austrian theory of, of productivity and savings and investment play out. And I, I would really like to see some work be done, you know, where this data is looked at under a, a, a stronger microscope and, and all the nuances are taken into account to build upon Hayek's Nobel Prize winning work. I, I doubt, I, I think it's highly unlikely that an Austrian school economist today 
would even have a shot at receiving the prize from the Keynesian loyalists at the Nobel Institute. Uh, but a strong academic case can and I think will be made for what I'm about to say. From 83 to 88, inflation averaged a much more modest 3.44%, but it wasn't, it wasn't rising again. But inflation never got back to its highs where it was, and, and it once again tamed. Now, in 1986, what became known as the Reagan tax cuts passed. And what happened next, and what I'm about to tell you, is very important. So, so listen carefully and, and, and understand the magnitude of this. From 1986 through the year 2000, and really until 9-11, but 9-11 you know, happened in September of 01, and there's some dramatic declines after that. So I'm not going to use the, the 01 numbers to, to go, go all the way through. I'm just going to stop here for this analysis right here at 2000. This was mostly peacetime. We did have a little Gulf conflict, but it was mostly peacetime. From 86 through the year 2000, Real per capita private investment increased by 79% total, while real per capita government spending increased by less than 5% total. The annual rate of growth of private investment outpaced the annual rate of growth of government spending by 11.6x. This led to the technology boom, which led to the single greatest leap in the standard of living since the invention of gasoline and the gas-powered engine. It also led to the greatest global boom in history as the ease of communication allowed investors to move money now around the globe and as investors turned their attitudes around about markets or excuse me, as governments turned their attitudes around about markets. And many people may not know this or remember this, but in real per capita terms, government spending in 1996 was 5% lower, or yeah, 5% lower than it was in 1990. And in 1996, government spending in real per capita terms was a total of 2.6 tenths of 1% higher than it was in 1986. 10 years, over a period of 10 years, not the annual growth, the total growth in government spending was 2.6 tenths of 1%. Now then the war on terror and the Bush Medicare expansions really did a number on the economy and the ticking time bomb of the housing acts that were started way back, you know, in the, in the 30s, but really had been expanded upon under Ford and Carter did a big expansion. Then every administration since, none of them are, are free of, of guilt. It, it, it remained ineffective, though, those, the, a lot of those regulations, and they remained sort of unenforceable until the Clinton administration. And then those acts really finally caught up with us in 2006 and 2007, and down came the House of Cards, and here we are. We all, we all know what happened. Now, as I said, there are many nuances of the last 30 years. Tomorrow, we're going to try to hammer out a number more of them during uh, our, our discussion on the monetarist view and flaws of uh, the, you know, U.S. history. 
Great Depression, you know, or 1929 through through today. But I think for tonight, it's pretty clear that the massive outpacing of private investment as compared to government spending is what drove the massive economic boom from 86 to, to 01 through 2000 and really until 9-11. I think it's also clear to say that a reduction in government spending, tax reductions, and more certainty led to increased private investment, which was what led to and, conti- and continued to create, and, and I'd say continues to this day to create, the massive advancement in technology that we've seen. But further, like I mentioned earlier, the 11-year period from the beginning of 1959 through the end of 1969, the beginning of 1959 through the end of 1969, it's what this reduction in government spending as as compared to the pace of growth of private investment is what led to that boom as well, which was one of the most sustainable ones. I I also think that listeners will be well-equipped. I mean, we're going to talk tomorrow night. We're going to talk. I know there's probably people out there that are yelling uh, if they, if they're informed, they're yelling into their uh, screen gold standard and, and expand. I'm going to do that a lot more tomorrow. Okay. That, that goes on the monetary side. But I also think that, that my listeners after tonight, you know, that, that we served a, a very good purpose tonight, pointing some of these, these big flaws. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't call, I don't even want to call them flaws. They're just, they're outright lies. That's what people don't tell you. Um, and I, th- I think that my listeners will now be well-equipped to be able to prove that world war two spending really just caused mass distortion. And that the increased productivity was primarily for the weapons and for military, which had nationalized the industry, while consumers and wartime businesses, or non-wartime businesses, which were very, very scarce at the time, had a really rough time dealing with the price controls and rations. If it was so great, why did it take 17 years after the war was over and productivity was turned back to consumer preferences? 17 years significantly longer than it took to recover from the Great Depression to get back to the 1944 real per capita GDP numbers. I really think that there's just a lot of nostalgia related to, to winning World War II and becoming the, becoming the world's military superpower, especially among baby boomers who's, you know, whose parents were the ones that fought in those battles. But the fact is, is that it wasn't all hunky-dory. The war was very, very hard for the people at home, not just emotionally, but economically. Food was scarce. Spare parts didn't exist. Everything was deteriorating and needed to be built back up. But for 17 years, the economy didn't reach its real per capita GDP peak. The entire philosophy built around this magical deficit spending that dragged the U.S. economy out of the you know, the, the, the Great Depression, it's, it's all built around a lie. The economy temporarily became more productive in terms of data aggregates, but people were either fighting a war or working their asses off for rations while worrying about their loved ones fighting a war. When the war ended, the economic productivity in real per capita terms declined by 28%, which was only three percentage points less than the Depression de- declines. From peak to trough. 
And it took 17 years to recover from that. That's seven years longer than it took for the Great Depression to go through its entire cycle. Ten years longer than it took for the Great Depression to recover from trough to, to back up to its, its previous levels, which it reached in 1940. All right, everybody, that's it for tonight. I hope you, you really enjoyed tonight's show. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow for part two of this series where we're going to debunk the monetarist view of the Great Depression and World War II and the economic growth since. So don't forget, don't forget, these are important messages, don't tune out yet, don't forget to follow us on social media. It's Facebook, facebook.com slash the macro view. On Twitter, it's at the macro view. And don't forget to visit our show page, which is macroviewnews.com slash podcast. And there you'll find all the episodes. Tonight's episode will be the first episode up there. But also you can find the other episodes and all the stuff I talked about will also be up on that that show page. You'll be able to find related links and sources and all that stuff. And very, very, very important. Do not forget to share us with your friends and your family and your social networks so that you can help me spread the logic of liberty. Hope everyone has has a wonderful rest of their evening. Take care.